I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ram Dass's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ram Dass, Krishna Dass, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more, the Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to the CSM Podcast with David Nickturn. Creativity, spirituality, and making a buck. Blending spiritual and temporal realities, joining heaven and earth. We will be talking with a variety of manifestors, individuals who have, in one way or another, clarified their vision, created an offering, and brought that offering to the marketplace. Let's see what we can learn from them as we each move forward towards solving our own life puzzle. Facing the challenge of living in the spirit, in the body, in the world, in this time. If you're interested in supporting the CSM podcast, please visit eherenownetwork.com forward slash David. We're going to start uh, with a look tonight at several aspects of creativity, spirituality, and making a buck. So, of course, that's my book. So I'm, of course, promoting it with total um, sense of exuberance and confidence and joy at being able to share it with you all. So, um, as you know, the main premise of the book is integrating these three dimensions of our lives and might be especially relevant right now because some of us may be rethinking uh, our creative output (laughs) and, uh, um, you know, thinking about how to keep practice going and um, creative and also the livelihood piece. So each each Friday night, we've had a special guest. Tonight, we have a very special guest, a kind of dear old friend of mine um, for many, many years, Susan Piver. And she's just right there in that waving her hand there. So uh, I've got a lot to talk to Susan about because we have a lot of different uh, touchstones we can talk. It just occurred to me that when I first met you, Susan, you were working for a record label. So you've had quite a uh, – you're like me in a way. You've had a very diverse – a career and tried different things and 
Susan has, is the founder of the Open Heart Project, uh, which is a very large uh, online meditation community. And um, <clears throat> we're going to ask her all about that. And she's also written a number of bestsellers. There's some great, great stories behind those that we'll also try to get her, get her to talk about. Um, but before we launch in with Susan, I wanted to introduce the first topic. We're going to do two topics with her tonight. So um, one topic, one topic is actually I quoted her at the, in the head of, heading of the chapter. Is and the title of that chapter is called "Make Friends with Yourself." If you don't, nobody else can or will. So the idea of making friends with ourselves, something we've been talking about from meditation teaching, suggesting to people uh, that they follow that, each one of us, ironing out some of the kind of harsh self-critique as an obstacle to engaging practice more fully. And we'll, we'll be uh, kind of covering that topic. And in the second half, uh, we're going to talk about something that tomorrow will be, tomorrow afternoon, for those of you who are taking the teacher training, will be the main focus, which is the business of meditation. Um, how, how is it possible to go forth and create a livelihood out of um, this activity, partial or complete, or looking at the possibility of doing it as a kind of seva, service, friendly, friendly uh, option, and all the uh, iterations in between. So Susan and I will have a very interesting conversation on that because she's she's got a lot to say about having really launched a independent project based on teaching people meditation, and she runs it um, as as her main livelihood source. So I think that'll be prescient in terms of going forward tomorrow and really talking about some of the nuts and bolts of that aspect of what we're doing here together. So um, let's start with, I'm, it's a very short chapter, so I'm just going to read it and then I'm just going to bounce the ball over um, and stop six feet away from Susan and throw her the ball. <clears throat> Make friends with yourself if you don't. Nobody else can or will. And here's the quote. She's quoted right in the book. If you've ever wished for a friend who would love you as you are, appreciate your genius and make space for your foibles, well, I can introduce you to this person. You are the one you've been waiting for, as they say. Susan Piver from Start Here Now, an open-hearted guide to the path and practice. So I'm just going to read a little bit of this chapter for you to set the stage. I've been this is my chapter. I've been teaching meditation for over 40 years. In my public workshops, I'm like an elementary school teacher in a way. I work with beginners and even brand new beginners at least 80% of the time. My job as I see it is, one, to somehow create enough interest through language, imagery, social media, personal contact, etc., so people will actually show up at these workshops. Two, to give clear and accessible instructions so that beginners can catch a glimpse of what meditation is, what it's good for, and how to do it. Three, to encourage people to create a regular practice. Irregular practice creates irregular results. And four, in some cases, to continue to mentor those individuals and assist them in staying on the path and evolving their practice and its flowering in their everyday life. <clears throat> we Buddhist teachers mostly agree that the three biggest obstacles, aside from actually acquiring a meditation cushion, 
to someone starting to develop a meditation practice, practice are these. One, getting to the cushion on a regular basis. Two, receiving and then remembering clear instructions. Having enough gentleness and kindness toward themselves to lean in and stay with it, even when the going gets tough, which is often right away. The last one's a biggie. Practicing mindfulness and sticking with this practice is challenging. It actually is a game changer, but most of us will experience frustration, boredom, irritation, doubt, anxiety, and any and every other feeling we've ever had we're never comfortable with and have been running away from for most of our lives. The ads that tout mindfulness uh, mindfulness centers and mindfulness trainings as the panacea for our problems are simply not mentioning this small fact just as the ads for gyms and fitness centers don't mention that getting in shape involves meeting and accepting our minds and bodies in the exact shape they're currently in, making friends with them, having some kind of sympathy and appreciation for ourselves, and developing the discipline of leaning into a practice. We have some idea that this effort will be good for us, but perhaps we'd rather do something else, such as eat ice cream, watch TV, social mediate instead of meditate, and generally just keep doing what we're used to doing. This is exactly what the ads are not telling us. Here's our slogan again from chapter two. With meditation practice, there are various benefits, but none of them can be realized if you don't make the time to actually practice. Any practice is challenging. Try learning to play the violin in three easy lessons. Try becoming a great tennis player overnight. Try learning Japanese or Russian. There's no magic, it takes effort. So many of my students negotiate with themselves and then with me to shorten their sessions. Some have a really hard time sitting for even five minutes a day. Very, very few students have said, I'm thinking of lengthening my meditation sessions, perhaps going from 20 minutes a day to a full hour on the weekend. Would that be okay? If we're gentle, we can be really curious about why it can be so hard just to be with ourselves in this simple and raw way. We can stay with the practice rather than running away from it. In the effort to practice mindfulness, we'll develop clarity, strength of mind, and stability, just like the ads say, but we'll also have to face our own mind and heart without a whole lot of padding. The practice is so simple, and there we are, naked and wriggling. Meditation is a way to genuinely make friends with ourselves, warts and all, to develop ourselves as human beings. Too much ambition, too much aggression, too much agenda, and we'll find ourselves getting tighter and tighter. Instead, we can try to relax and treat ourselves kindly, which will be challenging for many of us. But as Trung Rinpoche often repeated, I can still hear his high-pitched Tibetan Oxonian accent. You can do it! And you can. Then in the workbook, I just want to, it's very short. I'm just going to read this. The first part of the uh, uh, workbook on this chapter of making friends with yourself is one. Have you noticed during your mindfulness practice any of the following obstacles? A, irritation. B, boredom. C, doubt. D, fatigue. E, resistance. Two, have you noticed any of the following positive qualities? A, tenderness. B, curiosity. C, appreciation of your life. D, gratitude. E, gentleness. F, fearlessness. A lessening of judgment and harsh self-criticism. If the answer is yes, to anything on either of these lists, you're doing it right. Okay. So at this point, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to formally introduce the wonderful 
the glorious, the elegant, the brilliant Ms. Susan Piver from the Open Heart Project. Welcome, Susan. Thank you. That was the best introduction ever. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. Well, um, everybody's, uh, I think, happy to meet you and have, um, you know, we called people who are coming in on these uh, programs manifestors. It's somebody who's taken the principles and actually made them come, come true. Uh, so let's start with this topic of making friends with yourself. Just anything you want to say about it. Um, I really like that you use the word agenda in the chapter that if you have an, you know, too much ambition, too much of an agenda, that, that seems to be a big obstacle in making friends with yourself to me. And, and, and it, then it can get even more complicated because we get the agenda of making friends with ourselves. My agenda is to make friends with myself. My agenda is to not have an agenda. My agenda is to give up ambition. And every Dharma teaching that I've ever found just always doubles back on itself in that way. When you try to do it, it melts. And it's, uh, it's so much more plain and simple than what I would have thought. Oh, I just have to make friends with myself. I have to be nice to myself. I have to like myself. That's already way too complicated. And it's so much more plain than that, I find, don't you? Well, I'm, I'm moved to ask you, uh, this is something I call the two midgets wrestling. I think I might have told this. Have you ever heard me talk about that two midgets wrestling? So it was the Russian, the Moiseyev Ballet. I might have talked about it the last time we were all together. Did I? Anybody remember that? Yeah. And just to draw you in on it, it's this phen phenomenal ballet that they used to, from Russia, used to show up in New York. And it looks like this great scene where these two midgets are wrestling with each other. Of course, set to orchestral music. And they do a whole dance and throw each other all over the stage. At the end, the guy stands up and it was one person the whole time. Oh my God. Yeah, but mind boggling, you know. That's amazing. So there's something about that's always intrigued me about, uh, practice where it's just you let's face it you can blame whoever you want you can blame china you can blame tibet <laughs> you can blame whoever you want to blame blame me blame you but there you are you know with very little uh tech technique technology and what's the wrestling match that's going on there where does that come from why is it hard so interesting yeah i don't know i don't know but it, it is it, it 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 is. Where does the wrestling match come from? I think for us in or myself anyway, I think we've all been raised to think that we're no good, and there's some uh, unworthiness, and just sit and just say, well, I'm just going to be with myself, appreciating myself, disliking myself thinking, oh, that's awesome about me, or that sucks about me, and just staying with all of it. It, it. I think, at least what I've noticed, is so many of us feel like we don't deserve that. We need to be whipped. <laughs> is that from parents? Where does that come from? No. What's that voice? Judeo-Christian something-something. Yeah, Freud calls it the superego, I think. You know, well, 
the yeah. parental voice embedded in our head. And from a similar generation, Einstein said the most important, I'm going to paraphrase, determination one can make is, do I live in a friendly or an unfriendly universe? And I think that's another way of saying, do you think you are worthy? And most of us, I mean, myself included, I will not, I will not say I'm any different. I have some sense that it's not a friendly universe, and who I am is lacking. And so, if I have to sit in that, it's it's uncomfortable. It's you, not a friendly universe, and who I am is lacking. Yeah, that's a powerful little. Uh, l- let's you know not be presumptuous to think that there are those among us who are going like I don't know what they're talking about right now. I'm great. My parents told me I'm great. My society told me I'm great. I love myself. I look in the mirror and I'm just so happy, you know, with my weight. Please, (laughs) you start teaching. (laughs) You know, so, um, and and, Suze, there's another thing that I think when some of the Tibetan teachers got a hold of this, like they had to explain this to the Dalai Lama one time. Did you ever hear that story? I have heard that story. I just didn't get it. I know. I, I think the, the story I heard or read was Sharon Salzberg asked the Dalai Lama, and this is probably 40 years ago, how can I help my students who have low self-esteem? Uh, and according to the story, the Dalai Lama went through this lengthy consultation with his translator. What, what, what are they talking about? Uh-huh. It, was, it ended up being trans because there was no equivalent phrase in Tibetan for low self-esteem. And it was like when you don't like yourself. And he was like, what? People don't like themselves? Uh-huh. And Sharon was like, it's true. And actually, I don't like myself. And he and the Dalai Lama pointed to all these teachers in the room, Western teachers mostly saying, Do you, is this do you have this? Do you have this? And they all said they they do. And his wow. answer was, How can you not like yourself if you possess Buddha nature? <laughs> That's what he said. <laughs> wow. And question. then what did they say? Well, and then there's the other extreme of kind of narcissism. How is that different? Well, just somebody is ostensibly thinks they look like creme de la creme and the God's gift to the planet. Yeah, I don't see that as much different than thinking you suck. It's so <laughs> you think re- it's, it's, it's built reaction. on one is built on the other? I think it's the, a reaction to a feeling of unworthiness in both cases. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Does do people here do uh, relate to this? Just yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's take a little poll. Yeah, let's take a poll. If you relate to this topic as part of your meditation practice, part of your journey here on the planet Earth, some kind of self doubt, uh, sense of uh, you know needing to develop more self respect and worthiness, um, and if you feel like you don't have to out yourself here, but if you feel like raising your hand and saying you can at least relate to the topic. Yeah, that's almost everybody. Yeah. It's, yeah, so uh, this may be a little bit of a departure, but I I find that when people want to talk about ego, what does ego mean? How do I get rid of my ego? What, What is the ego? How can I stop it? As far as I can tell, nobody really means, nobody, we don't know what that actually means. What the question, how can I get rid of my ego is, how can I stop being myself? Yeah. 
And so I personally feel hesitant to teach on that topic or to use that word ego because mm -hmm. it's taken automatically as some sort of I suck. Uh -huh. And there's some self-diminishment is required in order for me to travel the spiritual path. And maybe from some perspectives that's true, but I don't, I actually think that's uh, the opposite of true. And some, in the practice, I notice in myself and students, we use it to diminish ourselves as a weapon, like you need to fix this and meditating oh. can help you fix it. So yeah. it's, a, it's aggressive and it's, uh, it's hard to, it's hard to stop weaponize. It's hard not to weaponize. <laughs> Egolessness. Egolessness and, and meditation practice. How interesting. It is, I think. Yeah. So, so like some teachers talk about, you know, very appropriately and accurately, others are more important than you. Yeah. And I, I can see what that means, the logic of that. Yeah. But there's this corollary that I can't imagine was included in the original teaching, which is others are more important than you and you have no importance at all. In fact, it'd be better if you weren't here. Uh, you can see how it could easily be taken that way. Oh, absolutely. But I can't imagine that the original teaching intended that. Well, it's it's, it's interesting because um, there are teachings like in the metta practice where you do send the kindness to yourself and the love. That goes right back to the time of Buddha. Mm -hmm. There's that famous story about Buddha saying to one of the uh, disciples, you know, what would you do if you had two potatoes? You know that one? Mm -mm. The two potatoes, mm -mm. and the student was trying to be a good Mahayana Buddhist. Said, "Yeah, I would give them both away," you know. And Buddha said, "No, you should eat one and give the other one away, because otherwise you you won't have any any strength or any stamina, or, mm -hmm. you know." Energy. So, um, but it, I think in general that we, I love that you said weaponize. That's an intriguing weaponizing Dharma, weaponizing uh, practice, weaponizing egolessness, and a lot of people in Dharma community sometimes. Oh, that's just your ego. You know, that. it's like a put down. Exactly. Or why are you so attached? Yeah. You care what we're having for dinner? You know, what's what's that about? <laughs> I know. Atta I Whenever someone has said to me, why are you so attached? I always feel like saying, why are you so attached to my non-attachment? My, my attachment? Why are you attached <laughs> to me being non-attached? Right. People get very attached to the idea of non-attachment. That's another example of the Dharma just sort of melting oh. back into itself. It's, yeah, it's it, like it's a, a game of ping pong. Yeah, so what do you think is meant by egolessness then? Or, or what word do you use instead? Um, I try to point to relaxation. Hmm. Just to relax. And when it comes to non-attachment, which is sometimes lumped in with egolessness, if I didn't have an ego, I wouldn't be so attached. I try to say that attachment, as far as I can tell, means the opposite of being blasé and somehow figuring out a way to convert all human experience into a monotone. You know, non-attachment doesn't mean pain doesn't hurt and pleasure doesn't feel good. Non-attachment, I suggest, means opening to all of it in the full range and not trying to grip or ward off but going on the full ride. So it means the opposite of blasé. Yeah. 
What do you? I, that's what I think. What do you? Yeah, think? these are very commonly. I mean, I find myself either, you know, obsessively or just, you know, ordinarily looking at the conventionally attributed nihilistic interpretation of Buddhist teachings of like that there's some negation involved. But negation is an important part of dis- dissembling from false beliefs is a big part of the, this training. Mm-hmm. And so when people say it's interesting to kind of dig into, we, we did a contemplation with the, the level one of this program on the three marks of existence, you know, the, uh, which is really what we're talking about right now, which is the um, impermanence and the anatta, which is, you know, anatman, which is the, has been interpreted as egolessness, but it's really, it's really, I'm going to look at that one with you in a minute and suffering, you know, so just thinking about where those things come from. So the fact that non identification of a certain type of self is part of the mark of existence and, but it's got three characteristics to it, which we've talked about with this, with this group. And the first one is the self is it has been misappropriated, not as a, as a flow of an individual kind of process, but as we think it's permanent. So that's one of the, uh, you know, one of the three uh, kind of freedoms that uh, that self has once you look at it. And uh, it also doesn't exist independently. You know, have, it doesn't have its own independent basis. And it doesn't, um, it, it's not a solid whole thing, like a substantial, uh, unique uh, individuality. Uh, because it's made of smaller and smaller parts, you know, it's, um, you can break it down. So when you liberate the idea of self from those three notions, that's what anatta means. It, and most people say, oh, you know, uh, you know, your individual life is useless, worthless, just become a, a, a bodhisattva, you know. That's, it's not saying that. It's saying that those three appropriations of the notion of self are inaccurate. And, and, and once you liberate from those, you feel kind of the, the whole situation it becomes more uh, impermanent, i.e. fluid, becomes more interdependent as opposed to independent, so communicative, communicative, and and then there's less of a kind of solid blob of a mass that you have to defend to the death, you know? Mm-hmm. So so these things are meant to be, you know, not punishing but liberating. You're right about that. That's the intention. It's not the intention to punish you. So at some point in, in the heart of the Buddha, which is the very first book I read that made me go, oh, I'm a Buddhist. I didn't know it. Trungpa mm-hmm. uh, Rinpoche said something like, the only possible spiritual journey. Okay, so big statement, drum roll. The only possible spiritual journey is your own experience. <laughs> that was like, whoa. That is, oh, what? I mean, I don't have to have these beliefs or or. or be a good girl or but by actual experience like what's happening right now that's my spiritual practice that's my path so that points to over and over points you within to your experience to investigate it to feel it not to categorize it or to you know perfect it but to inhabit it and and that's the path that's the practice so it's it's interesting to think of self non-self at, next to that. And I I find that juxtaposition really interesting and important. You know, um it's every day we all are looking around and you know back and uh 
other folks will send me a quote from Trungpa Rinpoche or, you know, from some other teacher. So there's like, we have a little bit of a bubbling cauldron of, um, you know, exchanging Dharma ideas, which, um, but of course there are many, many great Dharma teachers floating around different styles coming from, it's interesting. They all come from, uh, I don't know any Dharma teachers who didn't come from an Asian tradition, whether it's Theravada, uh, Zen or Mahayana and Vajrayana Buddhism. So in my lifetime, you know, going back 50 years, there was no Buddhism when I went to high school, Stuyvesant High School. It, there was no box that said Buddhist that you could check off, you know, on, on, your, on, your, on your thing. And then these Asian teachers started to come to the West. Uh, I think there was a, what we call in music a mashup. You know, they were trying to figure out our culture. We were trying to figure out their culture. It's still going on to some extent. <clears throat> so there are many of these teachers ar around and there's one of the beautiful things was there was the first generation of those great Tibetan teachers, which is like, you know, it was like being in Memphis during Motown, you know, uh, it was, it was, I was Detroit, uh, Detroit. Sorry. Yeah. That's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, um, now there's second generation, well-trained Tibetan teachers. So I looked at Mingyur Rinpoche. Have you all heard of Mingyu Rinpoche? He's a very interesting teacher. I thought maybe I could send somebody to, he's got a very well-organized online presence. And he's he gave a very advanced instruction in this little three-minute video related to Dzogchen teachings, which are the most advanced teachings. He said he went, his father was one of the great, his father was Toku Ujin, who was one of the great masters of the 20th century. And when he was a kid, Mingyu Rinpoche said he went and sat and tried to impress his father. Look, I know how to meditate, man. I'm, you know, I don't know if he's eight or twelve, whatever. And he's sitting there like that, and and his father looks up and says, "What are you doing?" And he says, "And he says, are you meditating?" He says, uh, "Yes, I am." And then his father says, "Well, meditation is fake, and the techniques are all fake. There is no such thing." <laughs> But I then wondered, do I want to send somebody who's just beginning on this journey? Is that the right teaching? It can <laughs> be very good teaching if they didn't quit then, you know, <laughs> like run out of the room and go, okay, I, that's the master. He said, it's fake. There's no such thing as meditation. It's all just a exercise, you know? So I thought, well, you know, yes, it's true. You could just relax any moment and do exactly what you're talking about, which is just relate to your experience be with your life, be present, and let the rest, the agenda thing fall away to a certain extent. Keep it as just a sort of practical thing. But so I'm asking you, Suze, what instruction would you give to your students? You have a lot of students who are looking at you as a guide. What instruction you, would I give them about meditation? Yeah. Do how it. Would you, how, how, though? You mean, how do you meditate? Well, you said, you just said meditation was just engaging your life as it is. So what's the no, what's the extra piece? No, right, yeah. I heard it wrong. No. The spiritual journey, yeah. the spiritual path, ah, is your experience. Okay, but it is impossible to connect with without to me, for me without shamatha vipassana. Ah, why couldn't you just have somebody like you say it and then you just connect with it? You just go on because I'm not a Buddha. Well, you're you're speaking the truth of the situation. You you're repeating what Trungpa Rinpoche said. 
and you take it as the truth of the situation. And he said, you could just do that. Well, if only hearing something once was enough, <laughs> it would be so awesome. <laughs> but it, it isn't. Well, so can, can you tell us how you personally and how you, as a teacher, how do you describe Shamatha Vipassana practice as the link to that journey that you're talking about, the journey without the goal part? What's the connection and, and, and how did you do it and how would you advise us to do it? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for asking me these questions. They're fun. Uh, good. Um, well, I would never say this is how you do it. Huh? I would say this is how you meditate. And now what have you found? Yeah. And it, it's important if to be to bring in three uh, aspects to keep your practice strong. They're called the three jewels. And you don't have to be a Buddhist to have the three jewels, but those are the three things that light the path, whether you are taking a formal refuge vow or not. So the first jewel is Buddha, which is taking refuge in your own wakefulness. And so when the second jewel is Dharma, which is connecting somehow to the path quality. And the third jewel is Sangha, community. And so if you want a good practice, a strong practice, a regular practice, most you have to have all three. Mm -hmm. Because at one time I was giving a talk and someone said, I had a lot of trouble being consistent with my meditation practice. Well, how can, how can I be more consistent? And I'm like, wow. 95% of the people I've ever spoken to about meditation have asked that question. Uh, or feel bad about being inconsistent. There's a very small percentage of people that don't have a problem with consistency. So for some reason, when she asked that, I was like, wait a minute. I'm not a mathematician, but I believe it's mathematically impossible for 95% of human beings to lack sufficient discipline to meditate. That can't be right. That just can't be right. There must be something else, some other reason. And so when I tried to figure out, well, what, why is it so hard to be consistent? I've realized we're only bringing in one jewel, Buddha. Because every time you sit, you connect with your own wakefulness, whether you, whether you fall asleep or you, are, or you have zero thoughts or whatever you're doing, you are connecting with your own wakefulness, Buddha. But most of us stop there. Not here, of course. But then if you bring in some connection to the path quality that arises for you, not my path, but what starts to change within you? What do you notice? The things that you listed, Dave, and your list of have you noticed tenderness, have you noticed gratitude, and, uh -huh. and so forth, that's your path. So contemplate those things. Notice them. Feel them. What does gratitude feel like? Did it, why did it arise here and not there? And think about it. Just you, It's always good to read Dharma books and listen to teach, teachings. Somehow bringing that into the practice helps ground it. But weirdly... And disappointingly to myself, the most important jewel was the third one, Sangha. If we don't do this with others, it tends to dissipate. And I don't know why, but I've noticed it over and over again. And I'm sure you guys have noticed it too. You show up in Zoom, which doesn't exist. And Dave says, let's sit together and you do it. And, and you're not going to go, oh, I think I'm going to quit now for whatever reason. You stay. And if you were to go on like a seven-day retreat or a 30-day retreat or a one-year retreat, you would do it because all three jewels are there. 
without that third jewel, you, we can we can do a lot of fun thing, as my mother would say. We can do a lot of uh, running away. But it's the third jewel that is where the rubber meets the road. And it's not that we're even interacting with each other particularly, but it's seeing your faces and being together that makes it real or grounds it or keeps it consistent. So we can't always meditate in a group, but so if you have a strong connection to meditating by yourself, very important. And then also can meditate with others from time to time. That will help. So those three, Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, we can bring in without having to formally be Buddhist, I don't think. Well, that's that's incredible because I don't think anybody's really emphasized that before in all these dialogues, the, the three jewels. We've mentioned it for sure. But you bring it up, and, and, and just to put a, a fine point on it, there is actually in the Hinayana teachings, which um, we... Um, uh, have have sort of talked about um, as the kind of foundation practices, personal liberation, you know, is the, is the goal. There's actually two yanas in the Hinayana. And, oh. and yeah, one is called the Shravaka yana and the other is the Pratyeka Buddha yana. Oh, right. So actually, and then there are six yanas in Vajrayana and there's one big Mahayana. So that's nine yana system. That's, that's where, where uh, yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> if you forget it, I'll tell you later. Okay. But it's actually a nine yana system, the Tibetan Buddhist system. And Dzogchen or Mahati is the ninth yana. So that's like ultimate. It means great ultimate or nothing greater. So um, nothing beyond that. And the, the Shravaka yana is meaning you listen to the discourses and you're kind of basically digesting the kind of fundamental premises of the Dharma. But the Pratyeka Buddhayana is an interesting one because it's a dead end. It's the solitary realizer. Solitary realizer. And uh, Rinpoche used to say they were called rhinoceros because, yeah, that's the nickname for them. No because they, rhinoceri are, are apparently, not that I have ever met one, but um, they're, they're not social animals. They don't herd. Oh, wow. Jonathan, you're shaking your head. Is that true? Do you know that to be true? Yeah, I've also been charged by one. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> on a credit card, you mean? Or? <laughs> no, no. And, and, and when, you, when you make a lot of noise and you jump up and down, they get afraid of the social interaction and they stop and bolt the other way, which is helpful when you're being charged by a rhinoceros. Is that's that what amazing. you did? That's, yeah. <laughs> wow. Wow, I'm a rhinoceros. I, I didn't realize that. Uh, that's right. And it's a kind of a cul-de-sac, a little bit of a, you know, dead end in, in the practice. Certain, re, re, Yeah, there's a certain level of realization and liberation. But what happens is they haven't completely... Uh, f- uh, had the extra penetration into into the emptiness, the full emptiness of self and other, you know, so that, that there's nobody left. And then, then that's where the compassion starts to become kind of three-dimensional. And then you're in the Mahayana teachings. That's the Heart Sutra. So that's interesting that, that um, uh, Sangha um, and in Shambhala teachings in particular, that Sangha is everything, community, the civilization, the society. Mm-hmm. And we could easily say that if somebody achieved even a high degree of realization personally, but they couldn't really help or relate to community or relate to other practitioners, um, it's kind of a dead end. Mm-hmm. So a reason a situation like this works and your Nuji Sanghas too on Tuesday 
all three jewels are there. Mm. There's a practice. There's a contemplation. There's some study of the path. And then there's each other. And, and if you separated those things, if you said, okay, you go practice in your room and then listen to this recording of these people talking, and then I don't know what, it wouldn't be this, it wouldn't work. Yeah. They're all three there. And, and I don't know what made me think about that, but it's the, it's the, it's the Dharma. I said, that's the path. So I didn't make it up. Well, and also Sangam is a little different. Let's talk about that for a minute. A little different than the ordinary notion of community because there's a couple of things to say about about it that are help align the notion. Um, one is that uh, they're peers of and other people who are have a similar vision, at least trying to work with the same kind of things that you're working with, and so the kind of feedback they give is not is neither uh, negative. You know, it doesn't add to that kind of negative negativity like you you suck and you you shouldn't be here and you're not allowed to say that and then on the other hand um it doesn't necessarily um blow you up either it's not sycophantic you know there's no there's no cronyism we we've seen that beast raise its head repeated times in the course of trying to transplant these teachings like you, you get a group of cronies and they're all just patting each other on the back and they're they're in the in crowd so it's a different kind of relationship, Sangha, don't you think? Than just maybe even ordinary friendship or family. It's got a different vibe. It does have a different vibe. And it's not just your fellow practitioners, although that's the primary Sangha. But there's some sense of, I don't, I don't mean to sound all kumbaya, but looking at the world as your Sangha and saying, I'm not going to hide who I am anymore. I'm going to take my seat in this sangha, this one and the big one. And I'm gonna show up is some, is what sangha means to me because I am really introverted and I can sit in my room by myself all the time. That's fine, I do, actually I do. Well, <laughs> this, a lot of us are doing that right now. That's I know, sure. but I've been doing it for eight years. Oh, wow. And, but sangha is not just Oh, there's these people around who might help me by being nice or irritating me in just the way I need to be irritated. But I also need to show up uh-huh. for, for you. Yeah. And, and, and you have an online community that's, yeah. that's pretty extensive, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How many, how many members does the Open Heart Project have? Like 19,000. Oh, my gosh. I know. Regular showing no, up regularly or they float in and out? The, the regular, like people that pay me, which we'll get to that topic, I hope. Yeah. Uh, Six hundred. Ah, okay. And the the, the nineteen thousand are on your mailing list, or yeah, they to get programs or something. They come to programs. They get meditation videos from me. They thirty percent of them open everything I send. <laughs> and six hundred people are doing what? They're they're like regular dues paying members of the of they're the, the open art project community? sangha. And so we have classes. We have retreats. In fact, tomorrow we're doing a weekend retreat. We have a weekly Dharma gathering. Every week I send them a new video on a theme. This this year our themes are the slogans. We're doing all 59 slogans this year. And it's a sangha. And it's full time for you, right? Yeah. Yeah. And we have meditation instructor training too. Yeah. And we have a publishing arm now. We've published two books. What's the publishing arm called? Open Heart? Lionheart Press. Lionheart. Mm-hmm. That was a movie. Oh, that's right. With yeah. that Val guy. Kilmer, I think. 
No, Gibson. Oh, no, I'm thinking, what was the one with um, Val Kilmer where he plays uh, a, a Native American guy who works for the, the FBI or something like that? I don't know. It sounds good. <laughs> it was really good. I, I thought it was Lionel, but no, you're right. It's Mel Gibson. So, um, well, Sus, I, you know, these, these conversations are always a little bit jam-like, you know, they're in the podcast mode and you just uh, go where they go. But maybe, um, could I invite you to just lead a little meditation for the, for our Sangha here? Sure, I'd love to. I'd love and to. then, and then we're going to go to the business module after that. Excellent. Okay. Yeah. So we'll sit. Yeah, sit first, talk later. Just for a little while. Sit first, talk later. So I once went to a talk where the teacher said the most important moment of my practice is the moment before I begin. So that's this moment. Moment before we begin. And there's some sense of just letting go. And establish your posture. From the ground up. The legs and feet. The hands rest, palms down. Sit up straight. And let your front body soften a lot. Your belly. Let there be a sense of spreading in the lower abdomen. The area around your heart, your throat, soft. And let the shoulders relax. The chin is tucked a little bit, the back of the neck is long. My favorite part, the mouth is closed because you don't have to talk. And that is such a luxury to not have to say anything. So you can let all the muscles of speech relax and the inclination to speak. You can also relax. And there is no one in there talking, actually. So you can uh, really fill with your own silence. The breath is natural. The eyes are open and soft. The gaze cast down. Let your attention rest on the breath, which means feel the body breathe. Let your mind be as it is. Most of your thoughts will come and go, no problem. If you notice you become fully absorbed in thought to the point where you've forgotten about your breath, notice that. 
label it thinking. Let go gently. Come back gently and begin again.
To bring your practice to a close, stop meditating. Just let the technique go. Thank you.